Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 27th, we are studying Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Starting today, we are doing a short three-day series on the readings appointed in the lectionary for the day of Thanksgiving. The text from Deuteronomy 8 is the Old Testament reading that many of us will hear during our congregation's worship service on Thanksgiving Eve or Thanksgiving Day. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Harrison Goodman. Pastor Goodman serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Goodman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks so much for having me. So, Pastor Goodman, we're we're jumping in without really any context today. We're looking at Deuteronomy <laughs> chapter 8 out of the blue because it's one of the appointed texts for, for Thanksgiving. Help us set this text up before we, we read it and dig into it. Um, all right. So the, the book of Deuteronomy is given almost as, as a bit of an overview of uh, the Israelites journey out of out of Egypt and in, into the promised land right now in chapter eight. Uh, we, we've been given the Ten Commandments. Moses is um, not to be long with his people. And, and so this 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 text is given to us that we might sort of reflect upon everything that has happened thus far, that that we can find God's mercy throughout uh, the, the exodus, throughout the journey um, in the wilderness, and and um, and to, to focus and meditate upon his promises, that going into the promised land, we might not only recognize the gifts that they are from God, but see what kind of God we have who would give them to us. Because it's it's easy to focus on sort of the, the good stuff within the promised land. Mm. Um, but a good portion of this text, too, would, would also remind us about some of the hardships throughout the journey. Mm. So it is, it's a text of remembrance. They're looking back upon their wilderness wanderings right before they enter into the promised land. These are, some Some have said the book of Deuteronomy is like Moses' farewell sermon to the people of Israel, his, his last instructions, teaching of God's word before they go in. Um, and so it's, it's a part of that. And, and it is, and it is something when you, when you think about in that context, what, what would you want to say Moses here doesn't only bring up the happy memories. <laughs> he, he brings up some of the some of the the less than happy memories, but for an important purpose, as we'll see. So with that set up, let's go ahead and take a look at this text. Again, this is Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 10, the Old Testament reading that many of us will hear either tonight on, on Thanksgiving Eve or tomorrow um, on the day of Thanksgiving in our church's worship services. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply. And go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that every man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on your on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. That is Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 10, the Old Testament reading appointed for the day of Thanksgiving in our lectionary. So, Pastor Pastor Goodman, we've got here at the very beginning, this is Moses speaking, right? The whole commandment that I command you today, Moses speaking for the Lord. He brings up the matter of, of commandment and law. What, what do we have in verse 1? Right. Um, uh, uh, hearkening back to the Ten Commandments and, and the purpose for which they were given. Um 
you see, we, we sort of, especially as, as the sinners that we are, we grab hold of God's law and figure this is just meant to make me feel bad. Um, this is just meant as punishment. This is meant to, to sort of um, get back at Adam and, and potentially, I guess, me for the stuff that God doesn't really want. And so he makes more rules to make life harder on me, sort of like a frustrated parent. Um, God gives the law for our good, though. And so even as Moses uh, recalls that which the Lord has given the people to do, today um, that they would be careful to do, he ties in immediately the benefits that come from holding on to the law, from seeking to obey the law, some from being careful to, to do the things which we are commanded to do and to abstain from that which we are forbidden from. Uh, they're the explicit promises that you would live and multiply, that you would go in and possess the land. Um, at, at the end of the day, sin breaks stuff. And so when God calls us not to sin, to, to struggle against sin, even as Christians who know that we'll be forgiven in Christ should we fall, he still calls us to struggle against sin because sin hurts somebody. Sometimes you, sometimes your neighbor always um, pulls us farther from the Lord. And so when we recognize that the law is actually given for our good, um, when, when we recognize the freedom that we have in Christ to, to see it as a gift because it can no longer kill us, uh, for we've been united with Christ in his death and our baptisms, we can actually start to look at the individual commandments and recognize, you know what, maybe, maybe Society would function a little better if we weren't all killing each other and stealing from each other and gossiping about each other. Maybe this thing's actually given for our good. <laughs> the, the example, the example that I like to use, is is a vinyl record, and and generally the music sounds better when the needle is in the groove, right? And yes, and it's yeah. when you've got scratches and 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 flaws in the record that the needle starts jumping all over the place. It gets out of the groove. The music doesn't sound as good. Now I know, I mean, some people kind of like those scratches, and and I mean, apparently vinyl's coming back. Any, anyways, <laughs> the, the point is. When it's in, when the needle's in the groove, the music tends to sound better, and and I think we can say something very similar about the law. That when our lives are in the groove of the law that God has given, things tend to go better. I mean, as you said, right? It, life is generally better when people aren't killing each other. Life is generally better when people are respecting each other's property and not just taking whatever they want wherever they see it. So, so God's law is given for our good, and, and that's. Well, I mean, what's what's the good then that the Lord wants his people to have here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Pastor Goodman? Well, he's talking to them about receiving a promised land, which we know foreshadows the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But um, in this promised land, we have um, this, this thing that tends to happen in the Old Testament where God displays something physically and, and tangibly that would happen otherwise spiritually in the New Testament. Um, and it's why we sometimes struggle, I think, with, with reading the Old Testament, where it seems particularly violent, where God's wrath seems particularly, um, well, fiery, uh, that we see God smiting people, sending, you know, bronze fiery serpents, um, or fiery serpents, excuse me, to, to bite and kill people. And we're like, hey, I like the God who walks with me and talks with me, where when we're given this this recognition that the law plays itself out in real good or, or real evil, as, as God would move the people towards a real promised land that would foreshadow the resurrection of the body, we can recognize that the reason that maybe God seems particularly nicer in the New Testament isn't that he doesn't care as much about sin. It's just that we've blinded ourselves to the spiritual results of it. And so we've been given the Old Testament as a gift to point out to us just how harmful sin can be, that it's not less harmful after um, the new covenant, that, that sin still damages, it breaks stuff, it destroys it. it well, it, it leaves us worthy of condemnation. Um, but but all the while that God is sort of giving people this this gift of the law, he is using it as um, not only a curb and not only a mirror, but also a, a guide that, that he would um, carry them towards the, the promised land. Um, in the same way, uh, in Christ, we can see the law as, as again, a gift that we, we can see not only the, the physical manifestations of, of breaking, but even the spiritual ones. And, and then hearken to, to, well, like Moses says, be careful to do the law. Mm. So as, as we are journeying toward the resurrection in Christ, the law is a gift that, that God would give to us so that, I mean, that, that life goes well in Christ. I mean, maybe that's not the best way of, of phrasing it, but, but that's, that's generally the way, I mean, that's how, so Moses is starting with, with something like that, right? That here's the law, do it. It will be good for you. And, and then 
it's connected to that Moses moves then into a matter of remembrance for what's happened the last 40 years. So how, how is the matter of doing the commandments in verse one connected to the matter of remembrance that he brings up in verses two and following? Well, I mean, the commandments, again, they never just sort of stand by themselves as sort of little one-off things that bother God. Uh, the, the law is given as a reflection of God's character. Um, the, the God who says you shall have no other gods actually wants to be your God. And so even as he remembered or calls the people to remember the law, he also, well, calls them to remember his faithfulness. Um, it, after all, was God who led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Um, and, and yes, you were humbled there, um, which again, is, is what happens when we're, we're exposed to the law. Um, God calls us to remember the whole way that, that he led us through the wilderness. And it wasn't, again, just sort of a God wants to be with you in the happy feelings in your heart. So just, you know, please do whatever feels good. Uh, he says, actually pay attention to the details. Um, remember how you were led in the wilderness these 40 years. Remember how you were humbled, how you were tested as to see whether or not you would keep the commandments. Um, and, and recognize then that, that the God who also knew that we were sinners, wouldn't abandon us to our sin. Um, because again, the, the law was a reflection that, that God doesn't want to forsake us. God n doesn't want us to sin, but he would never allow our sin to, well, push him away from us. He always pursues, he always chases, he always seeks to, to redeem, to, to bring about repentance and, and, and right faith. Why, why is it important that they remember these, these details, Pastor Goodman? Why can't they just sort of say, oh yeah, God brought us out and, and we're good? Uh, we do that too. Uh, we like to romanticize <laughs> kind of the stories as we look back. And so I can think about seminary and say, oh, it was a wonderful time. And, you know, romanticize it as if I was not um, trying to figure out what to do with the $6 in my bank account and eating expired food. Um, remember how God kept me in seminary so that I would not think too much of myself as God's gift to uh -huh. the church. Remember how God kept me uh, humble um, so that I can remember that I am a servant uh, to the church in all of these things. Um, and that's not just me. Um, when we look back on, on some of the roughest times in our life, when we give a few years to it, we tend to sort of soften over the, the places where we sinned and fell short of what we were called to do, where we struggled and feared and genuinely were, were brought to, to worry over whether or not this whole thing was going to work. Remember that part. Remember the humiliation, because that is where you were tested. That's where you were sharpened. That, that's where you were um, brought through by nothing other than the mercy of God, not by how things ought to work in your mind, not by your fantasies, not by anything other than God's abject refusal to let you suffer apart from him. Hmm. So, I mean, so it, it's more than what's going on here than Deuteronomy 8. This is not just sort of like finding a silver lining to the bad things that happen to you as sometimes maybe we try to do today, but it's actually to, to recall the parts that aren't the silver lining. I mean, is that, is that, is that related to what you're saying? Yeah, um, I like that uh, because when we're talking about the silver lining, we're always sort of like, how can I eke out a little bit of control or a little yeah. bit of understanding in this thing so that I can sort of use this for my good? The, but that's the same way we, we approach the word humble too. Um, uh, we, we act as if we can humble ourselves completely apart from our surroundings. And so when I, when I decide to be humble, I'll just sort of outwardly behave um, a little less brash. Uh, I'll, I'll outwardly maybe be a little bit self-deprecating in a, a nice Midwestern sort of way. Um, that's not what this is about. God says, remember the ways that I humbled you, that, that to, to be humbled, it, well, it's passive. It's something that, that God would do to you. And, and even in the scriptures, when we're called to humble ourselves, it's always in light of God's word. It's, it's in light of God's law and gospel. Humble yourselves by looking at God's law and remembering you're not as great as you think you are. In fact, you are worthy of death. Even humble yourselves by the gospel and recognize none of this is in your control. Don't just look for a silver lining or try and find the bright side or a way to control it. Recognize it was God and God alone who kept you a sinner through this. And then it can't sort of rest on your ability to control the situation. It can't rest on your ability to do enough to be worthy of anything. The whole thing just stands on again, a God who will not let you go no matter what. And so this, this God who will not let us go related to this same idea then is that God tests his people. He says he, yeah. he tests, he said, test you to know what was in your heart. Now, uh, didn't <laughs> the Lord already know what was in their heart without the testing? What's why, why the testing? 
Yeah, we love to talk this way, um, as if God doesn't actually already know what's going on. And, and if that were true, we'd probably need a better God. Um, the, the God who doesn't know all these things is not necessarily the God to be worshipped. That's that's an idol. That's a thing that that is of this world. Of course, God already knows what you're going to do. And of course, God already knows that you're a sinner. And, and quite frankly, of course, God already knows that this is going to go poorly for you. When we talk about God testing us in the scriptures, it's never really a question of what God does or doesn't know. It's almost always a question of what we will or won't acknowledge. Will we acknowledge that, of course, God already knows that we failed this and will will he still help us anyway? Um, and so when, when for example, in, in Hebrews chapter three, uh, God would sort of reflect back on this through the, the author of Hebrews. Uh, he would write, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the testing is, is again, as we reflect back on it, never God being unsure of what we'll do or unsure of how he'll respond. It's always, do we recognize, do we see, and sometimes even just, will we acknowledge that that bit that, that we don't want to actually speak? God has this thing to, to conduct according to his will. We're not in control. Hmm. Yeah, so then the the text continues into verse 3 with more of this matter of humbling. Mm-hmm. And as as he humbles, you know, he lets you hunger. Well, that that makes sense. That's a matter of humbling. But then he fed you with manna. How how is I mean, being fed with manna doesn't seem to be a matter of being humbled. It seems a, a gift, a blessing. How how does the Lord humble with manna? In the same way that he tests. Um these uh this reading is um later on in the lectionary tied to the feeding of the 5,000 um, where the Lord would, would test the disciples to see what they would do when they're brought five loaves of bread and two fish and the, the problem of feeding all these people. God already knew what he was going to do. God was not as concerned as the disciples were. The, the problem was that they were, well, deeply concerned with their ability to pass the test. Um, in the same way, manna was given as a, a humiliation um, because, well, there was no manipulating it. There, there was no controlling it. it. It was there each morning when you tried to take more of it, it rotted. It, it was there so that, well, you couldn't take extra in case God decided to change his mind. It was simply there, apart from our control, not according to our taste, not according to our preferences, but that God would provide for us in mercy and in love, that God would sustain us, even as he promised to, all the way to the promised land. In the same way, um, Jesus fed the 5,000, not because anybody passed the test. Everybody failed that test, everybody. But God still worked in mercy. The the wonderful thing is that nobody complained that they don't like fish at the feeding of the 5,000 because, well, you don't have to like it. That's okay. God's still giving you gifts that he would call good. And God is still using the gifts that he chooses to give for our good. Um, when, when we bring in our preference, when we bring in our desire to sort of control and manipulate the situation, we can recognize that what we really want is to be God. But, well, whenever we've tried to control a situation, it's gone poorly so far. Um, after all, remember, you should be careful to do the commandments, but you know, how's that been going? Um, the, the, the Israelites who were promised the, the land of, of milk and honey did nothing but sin along the way. And in doing so, there was real damage done. Um, if you want to measure this by your control of the situation, your ability to do the law, just recognize it's hopeless. But if you, re- if, if you are willing to be humbled by the Lord, you you can see it's actually probably a good thing you're not in control. And then you can set aside your preferences and say, is God a good and loving God? Has God who does not lie promised to take care of me through these means? And then you can actually start to rejoice in them because, well, it's not up to you to have to worry about it anymore. As you're talking about humbling, testing, bringing out the ideas of, of control, who's in control, can you manipulate God? It seems a, a, a typically the ways that we talk about this today, although I mean, we probably should use this language more often in our, in our preaching and teaching and the way we think as Christians. But, but it seems to me that a lot of this, the way we typically talk about it is in, in terms of, of faith, right? I mean, it comes down to a matter of faith and trust. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think so. 
Okay, good, good. So, so can you dig into that for me a little bit, Pastor Griffin? <laughs> All right. Um, no, I, I mean, that, that's just as a statement that stands on its own. Um, more often than not, though, um, the, the problems with, with um, our, our hands originate in our, in our heart. Um, the, the idolatry in our heart always sort of plays itself out in how we might try and live by something other than, um, well, the word of God. We, we always want to sort of build up a big enough nest egg for ourselves. We always want to, to, to talk about um, our, our, our ability to survive in this world and, and as, as if they, they can stand completely apart from God's promises. Remember that should you have all of the things that you are going to ignore Thanksgiving for to go Black Friday shopping for, um, Christ has died on the cross for you. And should you have none of them, Christ has died on the cross for you. When we want to talk about, um, well, meet and right faith. It has to begin in God's promise before we start to measure it in the things of this world uh, that we would find in, in the first article. We have to measure it in the third article of the, the creed. Um, has God given you the gift of baptism? Has God given you his word and his sacraments? Go to the second article and then has God died upon the cross and risen from the dead for you? And only then when we're finally put in the first article, uh, the, the stuff around us, can we start to say, I might not always like or be able to control the things around me, but the God who is at work here is the God who is at work for my good. And so that, that should be the thing that, that I want to focus on. So the other thing that stands out about verse three, I think for, at least for me, and I think for many of our, our listeners, is that Jesus takes this mm -hmm. verse up when he's tempted by the devil. How does, how does Jesus make use of verse three and how does that inform our reading of Deuteronomy 8? Right. This is, in fact, probably one of the more familiar parts of this, just because we recognize uh, Christ using this against Satan um, as the devil would tempt him in the wilderness to uh, to turn a rock into bread. Um, but the context of this verse actually starts to, well, shape our understanding of how Christ was tempted all the more. Um, this isn't just sort of like Jesus telling Satan that you should read more Bible verses and eat less carbs. This isn't um, the way that we so much want to approach this text. You can exert control over the devil if you memorize enough Bible. This is tied to control again, that, that Christ was put out of control as he was tempted in the wilderness, that Christ was put outside of, of um, power as he was uh, subject to the devil and the world and the sins that he would assume as he was baptized before that he, he would be thrust into the wilderness. Uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that means then not... If you memorize enough Bible verses, God will reward you. But the word of the Lord promises to you mercy, life, hope, even in the wilderness, even apart from that which you can control. Hmm. So it's it's more, help, help me out with that, Pastor Goodman, because I'm, I'm still mm -hmm. trying to, to figure out how to, to wrap my brain around that. It's not it's not about memorizing enough Bible verses. I, I get that, right? That it's it's not... You know, and it's not about sort of being able to pick out the right Bible verse to combat the particular temptation of Satan, but right. it's it's more along the lines of when when something, whatever that may be, whether it's food or money or anything that I would be finding security and trust in, that when that is taken away and, and I can't find my life there, that I have the confidence that that the Lord is in control, and I know that from his word am I, am I am I wrapping my brain around that right yeah absolutely um when we when we deal with idolatry um in, in whatever form it's really the same problem that we have when we come to humble yourself we want to always be the one who's doing the verbs we always want to be the one who's exercising the the thing that's in front of us so how can I humble myself well no you are humbled how can I read enough Bible to understand it. Well, no, you are given the word as a gift. How can I um, build for myself a treasure that, that will protect? Well, no, you are protected by God. Um, over and over again, the point of, of this verse is that you don't have to be the doer of the verbs. God is working all of these things for your good. And then it's not even just an issue of who's in control, us or God, because of course God is in control. When we start to see that God wants to be the one doing all these verbs for you, you can see that God is working not just control, but mercy. God is working not just control, but but love. And, and he's using all of these things as, as goodness in your life, that you would be brought closer to him, that you would be brought closer to the promises that he has made. He is using all of these things, the humiliation, the, the worldly gifts, the even the, the trials and temptations to, to draw you unto himself, that he would also, again, 
give you his word, that, that hearing, receiving his word, you might trust in him, that, that you might not be afraid. Um, God is working all of these things for you. And, and every single time that we run into trouble in, in all of these verses, it's because we sort of want to grab hold of all these verbs and say, this one's my job. But it's always got to work. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the verbs that that we're in charge of, it looks like, at least so far, the the verb that we're in charge of is being hungry. <laughs> you know, he, he let you hunger. That's that's and and fed. I mean, these are all passive things that that, right. that as we as we have them, the verbs come to us passively from from God's the, action. Go ahead. Yeah, the the one the other one I can find is that you should be careful uh, about the law. Mm. That that you should actually again study it, reflect upon it, meditate it, receive it as something that is worthy of your care. In the same way that that um, we're going to come across in a, in a few verses, the word keep, where we always sort of want to twist into an active uh, thing that I would do rather than just a recognition that this is wonderful that will lead to uh, an outward action. Mm. Same same with the verb. I was just looking again too. The same with the word remember, right? I mean, exactly. the, the remembrance that we have is a, a gift of God too. All, all these verbs here in this text coming to us as gifts. We're looking at Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 10 this morning, the Thanksgiving Old Testament reading. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, November 27th. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10 with Pastor Harrison Goodman of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Goodman, prior to the break, we had left off um, in verse 4 where where the Lord, he's reminded his people, you're not in control, I am, you live by my word. And then he starts talking about their clothing and their shoes. What's going on here? Right. Um, And so we sort of wonder how it is that shoes didn't wear out in in 40 years. But to me, kind of the the greater thing is is sort of the the petulance, the temper tantrum um, inside of me as an old old as an old sinner that I almost immediately want to just throw it right back in God's face. Like, hey, you drug me around a wilderness for 40 years. And the best thing that you're going to give me is shoes that don't wear out. Like, really, can you can you do a little bit more? Which is the exact same thing the Israelites did. Like, what do you mean manna every day? Can we get some birds? Um, I, I say this because I'm getting ready to, to drive up to Nebraska to do a wedding. And I'm going to take my kids with me in a two-day trip. And I'm already, like, hard, uh, I'm prepping myself to deal with the temper tantrums that my two children are going to throw. Um, and and, and here, are, um, I, I found a, a great thing. Um, as much as I might want to abandon the car and just walk the rest of the way to Nebraska because I can't handle the temper tantrums anymore, God refused to abandon his people. Um, throughout those 40 years of them complaining, God never once abandoned them to their desires. God never once abandoned them to their sin or their idolatry. Instead, rather, he, through 40 years of grumbling, kept them, and not apart from suffering, but but certainly through it. And and he bore that suffering himself. He was actively present with the people through the wilderness. Um, and so when we start to, to deal with um, the, the problems of this day and age, we, we still want to throw it back to God. Like, yeah, you know, it, thanks be to God that, that he preserved our, our life through the house fire, but wouldn't it be great if maybe there was no fire at all. Um, Rather, we can recognize that Christ himself came into this world to bear our suffering so that we might actually start to rejoice in them. Like Paul would talk in Romans where he says, we we rejoice in our sufferings, um, which is something that nobody wants to do. But as Paul addresses it, he never calls the sufferings fun. He simply reminds us that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because 
God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Um, this this whole thing runs to Christ who would die for the ungodly, um, that he himself would dive into the suffering that we are so upset about so that he could carry us out of it. Um, the idea that the shoes didn't wear out doesn't seem like much um, in the all that the Israelites suffered for those 40 years. But we're not just sort of saying, here's like your consolation prize. We're saying, here's a God who in his providence and power would also be present in mercy, present with them through those 40 years. So that while they were brought through through suffering instead of apart from suffering like they would wish, they might be given an image of the God who saves us through his own suffering and death, as opposed to simply abandoning us by coming down from that cross as he would rather do. Right. So it's, it's again, it's, it's not sort of the Lord's not saying, look, here's the silver lining. You know, you went through all this bad stuff, but at least you still got your shoes kind of thing. <laughs> right. I mean, right. it's, it's more than that, that, that in the fact that the shoes are still there, the clothing didn't wear out. You see the Lord's mercy in the midst of the suffering that he actually enters into it. And I love the, I mean, I think that's the connection you're making there with Christ that, yes. that you, you don't always get the, the wise or the, I mean, sometimes you don't even get the silver lining, but, but there in the midst of the suffering, there is Christ with you suffering with you and suffering for you while you were still weak, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Paul Paul makes that conclusion there in Romans chapter five. So it's not just the the silver lining, but it's it's the Lord working in that suffering, being there with you in that suffering, and and through His suffering there with you. That's that's where your the mercy, the salvation is is found. I mean, is that is that what we're what we're seeing here in Deuteronomy eight, and then connecting into Christ? Absolutely. I mean, we don't go looking for the silver lining of Good Friday. Like, hey, at least Mary has uh, um, a, a, a new son in, in the apostle whom he loved. We're saying, no, this is not sort of like, can we find the good in this? The whole thing is good. This is where God himself suffered for your salvation. Don't say, well, at least I didn't sin more to make him hurt more or some other weird, like enthusiastic thing. Recognize that as awful as this is, the joy is that God is here for you. So you don't need to sort of put a spin on it. You might just find God here working in mercy. Mm. So that, and I think that's where, where Moses starts to take the people then into verse five and know then as a man disciplines his son, the Lord, your God disciplines you. He, he's inviting them out of that finding a silver lining rather to say, look, this is where God is at work for you. And he's, he's working there in his discipline, which I think is related to the ideas of humbling and testing, but perhaps a, a bit distinct. What are, what are we getting at here in verse five? Right. So there, there is a, a distinction between discipline and wrath. There's a distinction between chastisement and, and punishment. God isn't simply like really angry and just throwing down fire because he just can't control himself. What God does to discipline Israel throughout these, these years in the wilderness is actually designed to shape them. When we discipline our children as, as sinful parents, again, we struggle with this, especially with my upcoming road trip, where there's just moments where I, as a sinner, can't control myself. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God does not lose his temper the way that, that sinners do. Instead, he seeks to actually mold his people into those who will not hurt, who will not suffer, who will not, um, well, rejoice in sin. God disciplined his, his people as a man would discipline his son. This is, this is a, a loving thing. Um, and in the same way, um, we, we can objectively recognize that, you know, your children will be better off should you actually tell them no once in a while, as opposed to the children who are never told no. Here, all the more, um, God who is perfect, where, where we as parents are sinful, he disciplines us not simply as an uh, an exercisement of wrath because that was poured out upon Jesus upon the cross. Even now in the Old Testament, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. God in, in sees us in faith as those worthy of love, worthy as, uh, to be called sons, children, and not simply um, pawn pieces to be moved or, or objects in a creation. The, this word, um, as a man disciplines his son, this is a recognition that when God deals with us, even in, in discipline, um, even to, to shape our behavior, even to let us face some of the consequences of the sins that we, we did so that we might learn from them, he does it as, again, an act of mercy, an act of love. Mm. The writer of Hebrews 
deals with this, especially in chapter 12, that when God disciplines, he treats us as sons. And I think about, you know, my own interaction with, with my sons, when, when I see them do something that they should not do, I discipline them. Not perfectly, of course, as, as you've said, and sometimes my anger gets the best of me, but I discipline my own sons. Whereas if I see someone else acting out, you know, I'm, I'm shopping in, in HEB, the local, well, you know what HEB is, Pastor Goodman. HEB yeah, is the, H-E-B. <laughs> hey, you got HEB here. It's the those of you who store. aren't in Texas, right? HEB is the best grocery store in the country, uh, maybe yeah. in the world. So, That's fair. so when, when, <laughs> when, when I'm shopping in HEB and I see someone else's child do something that they should not do, I'm probably not going to discipline that child because that child is not my son. And so the fact that God disciplines us, teaches us who we are in relation to him. We are his sons. He loves us. That's why he disciplines us. And, and so again, we're, we're seeing not just a silver lining, but we're actually seeing God working through the discipline. That's that's the point. That's what he's working. And it comes to us as good, ultimately because of, because of his son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our savior, right? I mean, is that, uh, are we on the same page here? <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. So, so verse six then comes to a, another sort of a uh, conclusion in, in a, in a, to a degree. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, your God by walking in his ways, by fearing him. There we have another verb that does belong to us, Pastor Goodman, the verb keep, but we need to yeah. understand it rightly. Right. So if I'm going to go swimming and I say, Hey, would you keep my phone for me? I, I don't just mean, would you obey my cell phone? Um, that in fact, probably don't do that. Um, <laughs> what I mean though, is, is, Recognize this thing is precious. And then that your, your actions are involved in this word keep. They absolutely are. But all of the actions involved in the word keep are, are first recognized in an understanding that this thing that you're keeping is something to be treasured. It's something precious. When, we, when we're told that we are to keep the commandments before anything else, we're to recognize that they matter. They're, they're a treasure. They're a gift. And that recognition that this is a gift of God, it does have an influence as to how we would appreciate, appreciate them, how we would, we would deal with them. Should we run from God's commandments? No, we should walk in God's commandments because here is a safer path. Here we have a light to our feet and a, um, a lamp to our path. I think I said that backwards. Um, but, but here we, we have um, something that, that God would give us that, that is actually worthy of our attention. Um, and a recognition then that, well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Uh, again, if, if you want to measure this simply in how much do you obey, well, you might miss the, the actual greater depth of the word keep. Um, I'm not saying keep means don't obey. I'm saying there's more to keep than obey, that there's a greater love, a greater treasure than simply measured in outward obedience in the same way that uh, well, if my phone rings while I'm swimming, you, you might let me know or you might even answer it. But the, the greater gift is to, to recognize that this thing is, has value in and of itself. And mm-hmm. there from that, all the actions flow out of that. Right. We don't want to we don't want to reduce the word keep to obey, but we want to keep it in its fullest sense. And I, I think the text helps us that with that because it says keep the commandments of the Lord by two ways, right? Walking in his mm-hmm. ways and by fearing him. And and as you rightly pointed out, the, the fear of the Lord, this is the beginning of wisdom. This matter of faith and trust, taking it back to the first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That's what it boils down to. So to, to keep these commandments certainly involves obedience, but that's not where it starts. It starts with this matter of faith, of knowing who the Lord is and knowing who you are in relation to him and and keeping that square, then that that leads into all of the rest. And so this this verb keep does belong to us first as a matter of faith and and then secondly as as a matter of of action, faith that that flows out in love. I mean, how can faith do anything else? So, so, so Pastor, it's, it's go, God go who ahead. operates, uh, and it's it's God who operates um, the beginnings and, and well, even the middles and ends of all of these. For for keep to be a faith word, well, that comes by the Holy Spirit, and even when it then comes down to to the actions, well, it is God who works in you to to accomplish these good things. Um, yes, this is certainly ours, um, our verb, but but even as it's given to us, we can recognize who's the one in charge of it, who's the one running it, and, and there we can see the God at work uh, to to well, create the faith that would let us treasure it, to, to create the faith that would actually seek to, to walk in the Lord. Um, again, this is a gift word. This is, this is a wonderful thing. This isn't sort of a condemnatory um, keep. This is, this is a recognition that God is at work for the good of his people.
So then in verses verses 7 through 10 really give us this just wonderful list of what the Lord is giving them now. He's brought them through the 40 years of wilderness and he's in his discipline and his humbling and his testing. He has done his work upon them. And now the gifts just keep on coming and and verses seven through 10 are probably, I mean, these are the gifts that we want, right? We, we know oh, that yeah. these are, are good gifts. How do, how do verses, I mean, how does, how does that, that long list, what, what's Moses doing here as he, he brings this text to conclusion? I'm sure that you could just run with the analogies from every single little um, thing mentioned. But I, I think, again, just an overarching recognition that there is physical benefit to that which we see as spiritual um, would be a wonderful thing. That the promised land is full of every last good physical thing. There's, there's sustenance, there's safety, there's there's wealth, there's there's joy. Um, all of these things are are. are given to to God solely because he promised to give them to them, solely because he kept them in the wilderness, solely because he dragged them kicking and screaming 40 years all the way to this gift. And in the same way, um, we look around in, in our lives and, and um, we, we sort of despair a little bit as even as Christians this day, where we sort of start to treat our faith as the best thing in the world that can happen to us as we die. Um, the best thing in the world that can happen to us is we're brought out of the stuff of this world because it hurts down here. Um, but the resurrection of the body that the promised land is tied to refuses to let the spiritual and the physical be disconnected. And so I can look around this world and find, well, the devil at work. I can, I can find sinners sinning. I can find the world doing world stuff, but I don't have to despair because my God brings the spiritual into it in, in the work of baptism to unite me to his death and his resurrection, a real resurrection of a real body that will inherit a real promised land in, in the life of the world to come. And so we can start to look at, at all of the things that we're, we're dealing with here in the same way that the Israelites were, well, drug kicking and screaming. Uh, God does the same to us in faith. He, he would continue to preach to us through through our, our pastors. He would continue to, to give to us his sacrament that we would not live by the stuff of this world alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, even as we eat and drink his body and blood as the Israelites ate, in, uh, ate of the manna. And in all of it, God is moving us towards the resurrection. Um, that the, the recognition that all the stuff that we're doing that they were being brought through, that they were wrestling with, that were failing under. All of it is is not sort of just a, a generic spiritual exercise, but it, it's tied to the very same Jesus who conquered death and physically rose, so that we too would would physically rise. The, the physicality is something that you can't avoid, especially in the Old Testament, and you certainly can't avoid it in the New Testament. Even as we recognize that the the blessings that we're talking about here, as we think about them for ourselves, it doesn't necessarily mean that wherever the Christian church exists, that all of these things are going to be, be that they're going to be present. But at the same time, I mean, we've got the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer that that the Lord is going to give us our daily bread. Mm-hmm. And and I mean we don't we don't want to downplay the physicality of it by any means, even as we recognize the the spiritual gifts that our Lord does give to us. And I think you're you're right. I think to bring up the resurrection is very helpful because there in the resurrection we see those things really come together, right? Right. The spiritual and the physical are actually united um, because, I mean, the, the daily bread is it's given to good and evil alike. It's given to people who, who absolutely refuse to acknowledge that there is a Lord. God still would take care of them. But in the resurrection, we actually see that that um, the, the faith that God would give to us is um, ultimately the, the joyful gift that, that unites us to him, both in the spiritual and in the physical. Mm, right. Yeah. The, the last verse of this text, you shall eat and be full. That could be said of a number of people, Christian and non-Christian alike, as you mentioned with the fourth petition. But it is that that last part of verse 10 that mm-hmm. is said of the Christian alone, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. And 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 that that's where the Lord is bringing his people into this land to give them these physical blessings. But then also to give them this great spiritual blessing. You know, here's, here's another verb that belongs to them. You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But, you know, I mean, blessing God, well, as a verb yeah. that we do, you know, what? again, this is, this is based God on what God has done. Yeah. Yeah. God at work. Right, right. So I, I think, Pastor Goodman, we've got nine minutes left on the morning here. We've, we've looked at the verses. And as we've, we've said, this is the Old Testament text for 
the day of Thanksgiving as it's appointed in our lectionary. I think it's I think that's true both of the if you follow the three year lectionary or if you follow the one year lectionary for the day of Thanksgiving. I'm pretty sure it's the same across the board. So mm-hmm. so many of us will will hear this text in a Thanksgiving worship service. Let let's make some Thanksgiving tie-ins. For I mean first I mean why why this Old Testament text for the day of Thanksgiving? Right. Um, and especially as we would want to celebrate sort of the American Thanksgiving uh, that, that we've kind of come to know and love, where everybody passes around the, the giant perfect turkey uh, and talk about how great we feel about how things are going. This stands apart. Um, notice there are no feelings of thankfulness in this text, not a single one. It's only talking about God's steadfast love and promises that there would, would um, start to give the people something to hang on to. And that's a really useful thing to us because there are there are some years where we really do get that perfect Thanksgiving. But I think if we're going to be honest, they might be few and, and far between. But but rather to to hear this text on the day of Thanksgiving isn't even just a recognition of who we're being thankful for to um, or what we're being thankful for, but it's a recognition of, of who God is that would produce the true thankfulness. Um, because we, we kind of mentioned in, in verse 10, there are plenty of people who are full on Thanksgiving, um, but not very many who, who would bless the Lord for the good land that he has given. Um, when we read this text, we are shown over and over again, God's steadfast love and promises that even as we wrestle with those verbs there, we can see all of them are, are God at work, that, that they would be done through us, to us, and for us. Um, even when we don't like them at the time, we, we can start to talk then about the bad years, the, the harder times, as a place where God would still be with us, as a place where God would still endure for us and, and to, to bring us through these things so that we can be thankful even in leaner times. Uh, God's steadfast love and promises, they're no, they not tied to how much stuff you have or how happy you feel. They are tied to Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so as we, we move towards um, this, this Old Testament reading in our Thanksgiving lectionary, we can we can rejoice that we've been given those feelings. They're not bad. You, you should feel thankful for the things that you have. But if you are maybe struggling to feel thankful, you can recognize that the Israelites maybe didn't feel particularly thankful as they were chastised by the Lord. But at the same time, the, the Lord who did this was a, a loving God who, well, they maybe didn't like the means, but they loved the result. Um, you, you might not like what daily bread you have or haven't been given. You, you might not like what you do or don't get to celebrate with in this this year, but in all of it, start simpler. Has God given his son to die for you on the cross? Is Christ risen from the dead? And if these things are true, you don't have to sort of say thankfulness is limited to how you feel. Thankfulness is measured in, in God's mercy first. Mm-hmm. Um, another place to, to go with this then would be that, that the thankfulness isn't, um, well, thankfulness feels different when you're not in control. Um, most of the time when we say thank you, because you just got past something, you, it, you know, um, when you're in control, thankfulness is just the polite thing to say to somebody who did the thing you asked them to do. Pass me the turkey. Thank you. Um, there, there's there's a, a genuineness to it. But at the same time, um, it, it's it's more of a nicety um, to somebody who is either your peer or beneath you. But thankfulness is different when you have no control over the situation at ever. It's a recognition that the person who gave you something is the source of mercy. Um, thankfulness is a desire to receive more mercy from the giver. So when, when we talk about thankfulness from the God who would keep the Israelites through 40 years in the desert when they had no control over any of it, Thankfulness is a recognition that if the Israelites are going to live in the wilderness, it's going to come from one thing and one thing only, from from God, who does not abandon them no matter how much they grumble, who continues to give them manna to eat, who continues to to be with them physically in the sufferings that, that they would be brought through to the promised land so that the people would be, well, joyful to go back to the Lord for more mercy, more help, more sustenance. And, and that's the thing then that continues even after they reach the promised land. Because, well, you, you stop being thankful after you get the turkey passed to you and you say your thank yous and you figure the transaction has completed. This is not a transaction. This is this is a, a, a lifelong faith where the people recognize God as the source of, of all goodness and mercy and love so that they would, even after they receive that which, which has been promised to them, continue to rejoice in his promises. The problems always come when we start to operate as if Thanksgiving is a sort of the closing to the transaction, that now this thing is completed and 
we can go about our separate ways until we run into each other again. No, when we when we sort of lose all control over the situation, we can't end a transaction and, and we can't go our separate way. We just need to keep focusing on the God who would give us more. And when we see that this is the God that we have uh, over and over again, um, it, it becomes a joy then to, to celebrate this, this day of Thanksgiving, um, even though it might not be an ancient feast within, within the heart of Christendom, um, it's a chance to recognize that as we deal with sort of the, the way that America would, would deal with Thanksgiving um, as a whole um, versus the way that, that we relate to God, uh, we, we can see something that endures, well, past Black Friday, um, past after the leftovers are gone. We, we can see then thankfulness as... as um, a recognition that God is good. And and then we can even start to talk about thankfulness for the things that we don't, again, feel super great, gracious about, like um, chastisement and, and suffering. But because we can recognize that God suffered too. Um, God is the, the giver of all mercy, and that includes bearing the suffering himself. And so when we talk about, um, you know, thankfulness for chastisement, um, nobody ever talks about the kids who are thankful to be disciplined. Uh, we always talk about the adults who are thankful to be disciplined as children. Um, there, there is no measurement that, that you can sort of say, I'm, I'm so happy I'm in pain right now. There, there's just not. Um, suffering is, is um, something that, that turns us to help. Um, it, it turns us away from, from logic. And so the thing then that, that we confront that with is Christ who is on the cross suffering with us and for us. Um, that, that when we are hurting, we can look to Christ who hurt for us to bring us through. Um, and only when, when Christ's suffering, when Christ's cross is at the forefront of what we are hearing, what we are receiving, can we actually start to talk about chastisement and suffering as um, anything other than sort of, um, well, pretending. Pretending that we're so grateful that we're hurting. We're so happy that things aren't going the way we want. Rather, we can say, the cross is the whole point of my religion. And cross is hurt, but I really want to be close to that cross because that's where all of the mercy is. Um, this is where all of the help is. And so I will endure waiting eight hours to eat a giant turkey because I know how good it's going to be. I know that this is the greatest thing. And, and so I'm going to, to lean into that. Um, when, when we even deal with real chastisement, real suffering, we can see Christ upon that cross bearing our sufferings for us so that we can actually start to see our God as not sort of just the, the arbitrary disciplinarian but the God who wishes above all else to save us and bring us into good. And then we, we, can, we can see all of these things as, as Christ's own sufferings and start to treat them as, as something wonderful. Pastor Harrison Goodman is the pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, helping us this morning with Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 10, the Old Testament reading appointed for the day of Thanksgiving. Pastor Goodman, thank you for your time today. Thank you. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The Lord was doing the verbs for them. He was humbling them. He was testing them. He was giving to them. In that humbling, in that testing, he was at work, not to find a silver lining, but there with the suffering, there in the suffering with them for their sake. And we've seen the fulfillment of that in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come as one of us in our own flesh and blood, he has suffered with us and for us. And now risen from the dead, he continues to be present with us in our sufferings that transforms our thankfulness beyond some nicety that we do just because that's what you do, but rather a thankfulness that leads us to ask him for more mercy, to continue to do those verbs of saving and giving to us each and every Day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Mm-hmm.